Hey there, we at Blue Wire wanted to thank you for your continued support of this podcast. With over 90 podcasts across our network, we are committed to bringing you great content to fill that sport-shaped hole in your heart. To find more Blue Wire pods, search for us on iTunes or check out bluewirepods.com. And remember, one day sports will return and it will be glorious. Thanks for listening. On to the show. Blue Wire. The Philadelphia 76ers select Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons. Here comes Simmons between the legs. Embiid! Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the New Slant Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Kyle Newbeck. And this week, our podcast is being brought to you by a couple sponsors, our friends at Bet Online, our new friends at Blue Chew. So thank you to both those fine companies for keeping our lights on. Uh, with me, as he is every week, my buddy, my pal, still probably uh, sucking down some hard drinks after the Eagles draft, Seamus Clancy. Seamus, how are you? Still reeling a little bit from the Jalen Hurts selection, but I'm here to talk about our favorite team, the Philadelphia 76ers. Yeah, for once, it's the uh, the Sixers who, I guess, benefit from one of the other teams making a hated move. And, you know, the Sixers didn't actually do anything, but in this case, inaction was good enough to have them at the, the top of the favorability chart, I suppose. The easiest for, way for the Sixers to go up in my world or my book is to do absolutely nothing because they can't do anything but shoot themselves in the foot. Uh, well, all that being said, there were some Sixers stories that have emerged over the last week that are worth talking about. I think where we will start for today is the Jackie McMullen article for ESPN on Ben Simmons. It's something that uh, I know she was working on long before quarantine started and the league was shut down. She had spent some time around the team. And, uh, you know, obviously when you're on the ground reporting every day, you always wonder if what story someone is in town for if they're not a regular. So um, when that came out, I always read everything she does. And there are some interesting quotes that came out of it, or, or maybe not. Maybe the quotes themselves weren't that interesting, but just some broad strokes concepts. I I think the thing that stood out the most, Seamus, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that essentially it was conveyed that Ben Simmons craves accountability and that the his favorite coach he's ever had was his coach Kevin Boyle at Montverde, who was I guess more of a yeller, more of a in your face type guy and. Well, number one, that's a thing you can get away with more as a high school coach. But beyond that, as it applies to the Sixers, there's a quote from Brett Brown where Brett admitted to having a conversation with Simmons and his family in the offseason saying something to the effect of, look, I could bench Ben. Is that what you want if he doesn't shoot threes? And framing that as, a question or a a thing that Ben and his family could argue rather than something that the coach was going to hand down. And, you know, I think that that, that sort of shows the issue with the power dynamic in Philadelphia right now, right? Where Brett should be the guys laying down the law and partially because of Ben's stature, partially because of 
the relationship he has with his family, he's not truly able to do that. Yeah, the idea that Ben Simmons wants accountability out of his head coach and with the organization that he's a part of seems antithetical to everything I've seen from him over the last nearly four years when he's been in Philadelphia. It just like, and I said this in the article I wrote, Seamus, is like, it's one thing to to claim that you want accountability and it's another to actually show you want to be held accountable. And I think like not to read too much into the media stuff because there are people that badger him about his shot only. And I would get weary of that if I were him too. But whenever he's questioned on anything in like a serious manner, Ben tends to be very defensive and dismisses any sort of problems he might have with his game by saying stuff like, well, I'm an all-star and well, I'm this, well, I'm that. And while all that might be true, that doesn't mean he is a finished product or that he doesn't have work to do. And so I, I'm with you and that I, I wonder if accountability is a thing he actually wants. Yeah, I don't think so. My psycho galaxy Philly trash brain take is that, you know, Brett Brown is still there because of his connection to the Simmons family. It's because Ben Simmons likes having a coach that doesn't hold him accountable. And it's just another facet of the Rich Paul clutch sports conglomerate being sort of secretly running the entire NBA. Yeah. So I don't think I, Ben I think Simmons, I think would... Ben Simmons wants people to think he's in, being Ben Simmons wants people to think that he wants to be held accountable, but he doesn't. He likes the idea of being this, you know, determined i'm not saying he's not determined but he likes the idea being out there that he is this super hyper focused killer competitor and i'm not saying that he doesn't have a killer instinct or isn't competitive in some way but the person he wants to be portrayed as isn't the person i've seen around the sixers organization for the last x amount of years he's he does not want to be held accountable for anything he just doesn't He's a great player who's go, done. He, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I go as far as saying he doesn't want to be held accountable for anything, but at the same time, you know, he's had plenty of time to reflect on the impact of not having a jump shot, right? Like Joel Embiid has all, campaigned through the media for him to shoot more. He certainly has talked to him privately about the fact that, and he was quoted in the McMullen article saying, look, Ben knows I've gone to him that I've compromised or, or sacrificed parts of my game in order to help him out. Like he needs to be able to use the paint. So that's part of why I take threes and I shoot threes. And, you know, the coach knows that Ben needs to shoot threes. The front office knows that everybody knows that. And I, I, I think, to me, like I, I hate spending so much time on Ben's jumper, and you know this, Seamus. I've said this a million times. It goes beyond but the I jumper. That, right, but I think the problem with the jumper thing specifically is that like it's not like people in Philadelphia and people outside the city that root for Simmons and for the team, they don't expect him to just show up and like, hey, you wake up one day and you're a 40% shooter from three if he was even a below average three-point shooter but someone who was willing to take those shots 
I think a lot of fans would be happy with that. They're not asking him to come out and be Ray Allen. They don't they don't expect him to completely transform overnight. It's the stubbornness and the unwillingness to compromise on the shot that I think gets people. Would you agree with that? Yeah, Ben Simmons doesn't want to have someone look on his basketball reference page and see that he shoots 29% from three or that his field goal percentage is now dropped below 50% because of all the threes he's taken. He doesn't want that to be out there. And I think people would be, even if he shot average one attempt per game and he shot 32% on it, I think a lot of people would be happier about him than he is because it just shows that he's taking into account all of these things. People in the organization, his teammates, his coach, the front office, the ownership for all we know are telling him to do that he's not doing. Yeah, it's just, it's a strange thing that I've I've never understood about this situation that, you know, and he could look at the perfect example. If you look at his former teammate, Markel Fultz, and how he was treated during his whole uh, jump shot fiasco, the city of Philadelphia galvanized around that kid and supported him beyond any reasonable measure for someone who couldn't shoot, couldn't play at the time. Oh, and, I don't want to get on this discussion. Right. But hold me back. But, but if you look at that as Ben Simmons, and then you see the reaction that he's gotten when he's taken and made threes in games in Philadelphia, and you still are here stubbornly like, well, I don't want to really ramp this up until I can be great rather than, you know, below average to good. Like the process has to be there where he has to be willing to fail in a February game against the Knicks, or he's never going to be comfortable in a playoff game in Boston, a finals game in LA or wherever it is like that. That's never going to happen if there's not that gradual process of him ramping up from a non-shooter to a below average to decent shooter to good to great and i getting to great it seems like an impossibility but just as like a progression chart i i just don't see how it happens if he, he doesn't budge on this uh at the end of his career how many three-point attempts do you think ben simmons will have shot I I honestly could not tell you. On the and the non, you know, half court end of quarter heave variety. Does he get the triple digits? No. So better, you just don't there's think a he's better chance, going there's to... a better chance he gets the just single digits than it does that he gets triple digits. I I think eventually there's going to be a breaking point where he figures out that it's gotta come. Because and I think it's it's going to have to happen, sadly, for him and for the Sixers and their fans. It's going to have to happen with him failing repeatedly on a big stage and having some sort of come-to-Jesus moment where he realizes, look, this is it for me. I can't go further than this without changing who I am. And you know, I think a lot of guys, maybe not as dramatic as this problem is, but a lot of guys have those... Uh, hurdles and those things that they have to be confronted with over time. I mean, even watching the Michael Jordan documentary, the Sunday, which we're going to get to later, the fact that it took him until year seven to start lifting weights after it's like, I know that uh, physical conditioning and, and 
that side of sports was taken for granted compared to now. But the fact that like the greatest basketball player in the league and one of the best of all time did not take physical conditioning seriously until his seventh year, that is, uh, that's mind blowing. So I think Ben is going to have to be humbled repeatedly before we see anything change. Let's put it that way. Maybe he gets some accountability and then he could finally do that. Maybe. But so let's focus on the Brett part of that, because obviously I think a lot of people saw that as, you know, the reason that Brett should not be the coach, shouldn't have been brought back. Um, And look, that was laid as bare as it could be that this is the issue with that dynamic, right? Like as much as I think Brett has gotten an unfair shake at times, that is a, a crystal clear picture of, the lack of power and lack of sway that he has over this guys. Because if you, I, I don't want a yelling coach in charge of an NBA team. I don't no. think it works. I don't no. think it's sustainable, but you need someone who is willing to lay the law down and someone who can manage trust and relationships with his players as Brett has over the years from, you know, developmental guys to stars in the vein of, of Simmons and Embiid. They also have to be willing to confront those guys. Like Phil Jackson was a master of that. He was he would figure out how to to tweak guys and to make them mad when it was appropriate, but also to nurture them, also to make them feel important and and reach out to guys in different ways. And if one of your two big stars is basically begging to be held accountable then you have to try to do that. I know that's obviously the risky move as a, a head coach whose job security is up for debate and you might risk alienating him and then your exit is sooner rather than later. But what do you have to lose at this point? The, the, the situation is what it is. Uh, unless Ben becomes a better shooter, the Sixers team has a ceiling and it's a ceiling that is going to be blamed on Brett Brown for better or for worse. So I, I don't get the philosophy there. I, I don't, I don't understand why his approach hasn't changed. I know obviously he made the public demand of Ben that, that backfired earlier this season, but I think it's clear. He's just, he's not doing enough or he just doesn't have enough power to be able to, to get him to do much. And that's, that's a big indictment on Brett. Yeah. The closer, I think the reason he might be reluctant to do that is in his mind, his greatest chance of staying around is because he knows of Ben's limitations and, you know, he won't have any success doing that immediately in terms of being a a three point shooter or a jump shooter and providing value in that way. Uh, In the 2020 season, his best way to remain employed with the Sixers is to continue his cozy relationship with Ben and the Simmons family and the way Ben uh, and Joe wield power in this organization where, you know, he kind of lets them do what he wants. And if he has them in their corner in that regard, it's easier to keep him around because I'm sure the front office and the ownership group is sweating bullets that either one or two of them may bolt in the next handful of years or however long it may be. And I I think this is also an example of what happens when you cycle through people in power the way that they have. I know, obviously, Brett is the big holdover, but that entire organization lives in fear of 
angering or maybe not keeping happy one or both of Joel and Ben. Like they don't have the power to walk in there and say, look, we're cha- we're making this change unilaterally. We're not considering what, what you had. To, uh, like, I, I wouldn't say that. They would consider what they had to say no matter what, but they don't have either the balls or the power to do any kind of major major move, major decision without getting it cleared by, you know, the, the mover, the two movers and shakers. And that's a bad position to be in because, you know, then you get into a position where, and we've seen this with teams that LeBron played for in the past, they draft guys at his behest. They go out and get people that they want versus maybe who fits best next to them and who might get the best out of them. I, I don't think it's a good, situation for them to be in and I I don't know if that dynamic changes if you bring in a new coach and you bring in a new front office some of that might actually get worse if you like for example if they were to bring in another front office this summer because they're unhappy with how things have gone that's only putting more power in the hands of, of Simmons and Embiid because they know that everyone but those two are disposable in the organization. So it's a very, it's a very dangerous line that they have to walk. And I think the obvious answer is they're probably going to move on from the coach in the off season, but there's a, there, it's not a lot of good answers for the predicament they're in with these two. Clutch sports, baby. <laughs> I say predicament. It's still a good problem to have, to have guys. With but believe me, it level. could be a lot worse. Yes. I don't mean to make it seem like it's a doomsday scenario to have Simmons and Embiid as your your franchise pillars, but at the same time, there are certainly some things they have to deal with. Uh, I, I think it's probably time for an ad break, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about some front office stuff and a little bit of Michael Jordan before we go. So I'm here to tell you, as usual, about our friends at Bet Online. With no NBA, NHL, or Major League Baseball, you might think there's nothing to bet on, but you'd be very wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on. From their online casino to poker and blackjack, they're bringing Vegas to you. Are you missing the NFL? No problem. Bet Online has live daily Madden NFL simulations that you can bet on. You can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. It's all open 24 hours a day, and it's all online. So use promo code BLUEWIRE, that's B-L-U-E-W-I-R-E, to join today and receive your new welcome bonus. Bet online, your online wagering solution. I'm thinking about entering the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest this year. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, everyone's a, I feel like I'm a professional eater now that I'm stuck in home. Well, I think could be have, worthwhile. <laughs> I think you have another one of our sponsors to tell the, the people about today, Seamus. Our friends yeah. at Blue Chew. And this would be great while you're stuck at home. Guys, <laughs> looking to last longer and go a few extra rounds? Get to BlueChew.com. BlueChew.com has the first ever Truable that brings you performance in the bedroom to another level. They've got the same active ingredients that are in Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. And since they're chewable, they work faster. 
You can take them anytime, day or night, at home, out and about, in the city, wherever you're at, even on a full stomach. It doesn't matter what you've been eating. Plus, you don't need to go to the doctor's office or spend time waiting in the pharmacy line. I'm always in the pharmacy line at Acme. I feel like I'm a, you know, a 75-year-old person with ARP. It sucks waiting in line at CVS or your pharmacy. You don't have to do that anymore. Blue Chew's online physician is free of cost. And once approved, your order ships straight to your door in discreet packaging. Your neighbors don't know what's going on. They won't look at you like you're crazy. Totally discreet, totally normal. Here's a great deal for you guys. Visit bluechew.com and get your first order free when you use promo code BLUEWIRE. Just pay $5 shipping. That's it. Just $5 shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-CHEW.com. Promo code BLUEWIRE. Red like a true pro, Seamus. I love it. All right. So now that we're past the, uh, the keeping the lights on segment of the podcast, uh, some news came down at... So we're recording this on... Monday at around 7 p.m. Eastern. I want to say at like 1 a.m., 1.15 a.m. last night, Adrian Wojnarowski reported that the Chicago Bulls were hiring Mark Eversley, who I I don't know what his exact title was in Philadelphia because they Exactly, have, exactly. They have, but not because I don't know what he does, but because they made a bunch of changes to the names and... um. Needless to say, here I'm. I'm gonna look it up right now. I should have had this up already, but we're gonna we're doing this live. Uh, he's the senior vice president of player personnel for the Sixers. Will now be the general manager in Chicago. So uh, as far as I can see it, that's a a step up for Mark. Um, and, and so I guess on, on my end, I can give a little insight on what he did in Philadelphia, maybe what his role was here. He was I. The one thing I know for a fact is that he was pretty involved on the scouting side of things. I know last year in particular with Elton in his first year as full-time GM that they leaned more heavily on Eversley to make scouting trips and travel around the country watching college kids and going to games. And I know he was he was in on Matisse Thibel early, so that you give him – some credit for that. The flip side of that is that uh, when Markel Fultz was drafted by the Sixers, uh, Brian Colangelo publicly said that Eversley was on Fultz back to dating back to like high school showcase type games. And oh, geez, you know we all know how that turned out. I don't know that I hold that against Mark Eversley, but uh, that was <laughs> that's on his resume as well. So. I think in the interim, part of the impact is going to be, you know, how do they figure out draft and and did they do they have enough of his thoughts and I guess intel on file that they can go into this year's draft without needing to replace him. I, I'm still working on figuring out what their plan is with the front office in general moving forward, let alone with Eversley leaving for you know a different situation, but. Uh, it's it at least guarantees another change for an organization that has not been short on changes. So I don't know if you have much to offer here, Seamus, but that was my sure. little spiel on Mark Eversley. 
the one side note that popped up during uh, your little speech on Mark was that I did once see a tweet that blamed Liberty Ballers for the Sixers drafting and trading for Markel Fultz. So uh, people might blame Mark for the Mark Fultz trade, but some people might blame Kyle and myself. So it could be any of us here. Anyway, Mark, I don't know what yeah, he really who's did in Philadelphia. Say? Who's to say? Who's, who's to fault? say? I mean, maybe I'd say maybe 75% him, 25% us. So, yeah, I don't really know what he does in Philly. I don't, I'm obviously someone who's not a fan of the little kind of groupthink uh, conglomerate they have uh, with the, you know, Elton Brand is the GM, but is he more of a public persona? Or who's doing the work behind the scenes? Who's doing this? Who's doing what? And... You know, it's good that Mark got a new job and a promotion and has, you know, a chance to run an organization, I'm sure. But the thing I'm excited about is ideally that means there's new blood coming into the organization because someone left. Obviously, there can be people that are internal lower up within the front office hierarchy that may get bumped up. But at the very least, you know, if someone leaves, someone has to enter and as much new blood that hasn't been tainted by the calangelo stench comes into this organization is a plus for me so you know i don't hate i'm not gonna crap all over mark because i don't know him personally he's never done anything outwardly bad the way uh calangelo might have or the way alton brand just seems like way in over his head so i'm not gonna be mean to mark or anything but i'd be lying if i said i wasn't glad someone who's so entrenched from the calangelo era is no longer with the team that's awesome. Yeah, and, and what I would say is that I think for in the interim, if I had to guess, I think you would see someone like Vince Rosman step up. And obviously he's already the VP of scouting for the Sixers, so he already has a very prominent role in terms of uh, the draft. So maybe you see him take on some more responsibility. I don't know who else that they have internally right now that is like an obvious candidate to – to take on more responsibility, but yeah, I don't think it would hurt this team to get, you know, some new blood in here, even if they don't go with wholesale changes in the front office, which you and I have discussed some in previous podcasts. I I do think that they would benefit just from having a a different voice in there that might, you know, push back on some of these guys who have been there for a bit. Yeah. They, they need some new blood. So, you know, that's the nicest way to put it. I think is that they need some new blood. <laughs> okay, so not much more to offer there, I suppose. All right, so we'll move on to um, the last dance, which I think even if it... So I won't editorialize yet on what I think of this Michael Jordan 10-part documentary, but I do think something that I I undervalued about sports and that I have appreciated about this event that we've had the last two weeks is that it's good to just have something that's like a, a shared experience culturally. It's not the same as, you know, a new Netflix show drops that you can binge on your own time. It's a thing that's, it's being broadcast at a certain time on a certain night. I I would say the same thing about the NFL draft this weekend, despite the fact that the Eagles left a lot of people pissed off that having something that we're all reacting to together and in real time, even though we can't be together, it just felt good to, you know, 
even to see Eagles fans be mad over the weekend and, and feel just to feel something again. That was I, I enjoyed that and I have enjoyed these last two Sunday nights. You know, seeing some people get acquainted with Michael Jordan and those Bulls teams for the first time and seeing some people relive old memories. So that's that's where I'll start with that. I don't know where uh where your head's at in terms of the last dance, Seamus. I don't think it's anything groundbreaking or we're getting these insider tales that we've been missing out on for the last 25, 30 years. Uh, But I'm also saying that as someone who turns 26 years old next month, uh, has no memory of Michael Jordan playing for the Chicago Bulls, but obviously someone who's an NBA history nerd, has read a ton of this shit before, has seen, you know, as many NBA history documentaries, films, series, shorts as one could consume, especially in my college years. So again, yeah. there's nothing new that's groundbreaking, but uh, it's entertaining. And it's at a point in time where we need something entertaining. We need something that collectively, the people of the sporting world and sports fans can just watch and talk about in real time on Twitter as if we were watching, you know, a Sunday night football, you know, game between the Patriots and the Steelers, or if it was just a Sunday night version of Game of Thrones and we're tweeting about it afterwards, it's nice to just have this thing that's normalcy. I'm not going to say it's mindless, but it's not something where you have to be, Is you can be kind of a passive participant while watching this and still get enjoyment out of it. You don't have to be so dialed in thinking about every single aspect of it. And it's nice to have something that you can just kick back, relax, maybe drink a beer, have a seltzer or something, live tweet it, scroll on your phone, and just make yourself feel like you're in the regular world for two hours every week. Yeah, so here's where I'll get into, I guess, my negative spin on this so far. I think it's very obvious that Michael Jordan has a lot of say on what was put into this documentary. Uh, Because because anything that could be something ugly for him – is glossed over and this is very it's it's less of a documentary than it is like a hero's retelling of his victory and you know every bit of failure is not so much about the failure as it is a lesson for our our conquering hero to take with him on his path to glory and i think that the one that the the memory that really stood out and i wrote about this last night was the migraine game that Scottie Pippen had in game seven of the 1990 Eastern Conference Finals because that was that's Phil Jackson's first season in charge as the head coach. And, you know, that you would think if you just look back through history, it's like, oh, they, they bring in Phil, he's the head coach, and they take off immediately. And they almost did. If not for – if Scottie Pippen doesn't have a, a terrible game in game seven, maybe they win – He's suffering through migraines, and it was such an issue with Jordan that when they were in the conference finals, I believe a year later, they beat Detroit in game one, and Jordan had a a tough game. I think he had like 20 points or 22 points in 1991 game one, and he gets asked by a reporter what happened, and Jordan makes a comment to the effect of, well, you know, I should just say I had a headache, and like takes a shot at Scottie Pippen a year later after a game that they won against the same team. And so this was not a thing that Jordan just was like, well, I support my teammate. And obviously he wasn't, he didn't feel well. There's nothing you can do about it. Like 
He was a fucking dickhead about it and was a dickhead for years about it. And even in the documentary last night, as they tried to dress it up and give you like the sanitized version of it, Michael Jordan, you could still tell there was like a contempt for the very idea that someone could not be feeling well for a big game like that. And so that's the stuff that, you know, they they haven't grappled at all with. Like, I think the, the problem I have with looking back on Michael Jordan is that because he won, it gets painted as, well, he won because he was this asshole, dickhead competitor, not because he was, you know, like a, an all-time great athlete or uh, had great teammates around him, et cetera, et cetera. It's just, it gets boiled down to, well, he was this way, so everybody should be this way. When there were real side effects and there were real issues that they had because Michael was such a a dick at times, to, to put it lightly. So I would have liked to see stuff like that grappled with a little more and maybe what impact that had on someone like Scottie Pippen, to a lesser extent, someone like Horace Grant, Dennis Rodman later on, BJ Armstrong, John Paxson, like any of those guys. But a lot of it is just, well, you know, Michael was great and we won, so what? And the, the ends justify the means. And that's not as interesting to me as I think this documentary could have been. Yeah, I got a migraine once on a bachelor party and I would have rather have died than dealt with that. So I'm team Scotty in this scenario. And Michael's a dick, but that's kind of the endearing factor, right? Oh, he's this asshole. He'd punch people in practice. And it's this point where, like, where does the mythology cross over to just how we deal with people in the modern world? Because I'm sure if the social media and, you know, news cycle was the way it was now in the 1990s, we might not think of Michael Jordan as favorably just because uh, the availability of backlash and the backlash to the backlash and the backlash to the backlash to the backlash would kind of destroy the the figure we've all painted him to be for the last 20, 30 years. Um, so it's strange. It's not as kind of insightful. Uh, insightful is not the right word. It's not as quite, uh, doesn't get to the, ang- I don't want to say evil, but just kind of the uh, nefarious aspects of Michael's character that I'd like to explore more uh, that goes beyond just like, oh, this is his funny dickhead story. I'd like to see something where it's like, wow, that guy is like, maybe kind of a piece of shit. I wanted more stories like that, but we're not going to get that in this type of setting. Uh, Michael would never allow it. Michael is still one of the most powerful people in the basketball world. So I can't really see us ever getting those secrets and the things that, you know, the hardcore NBA fans, people who already know uh, all of these tales that ESPN is giving us. And while they're entertaining, I'm sure we want the deeper, more insidious stuff. Yeah. And look, his greatness is not going to be impacted one way or another. No, no, not at all. So that's why I am so disappointed in the fact that we're not getting that stuff because no one's going to say, well, he, now he, his, I think less of his career because, and I think regardless of where you fall on, you know, the goat debate that I think Michael Jordan to me has the best sports career ever because, and I don't think that's something that can ever be topped because just like narratively, it's like a sports movie. He has his trials and tribulations as a young player. Like he's the the up and comer who doesn't have enough help. Then he starts to get help and he's got to overcome his, his big hurdle, which is the Detroit Pistons in the late eighties. And then he overcomes that hurdle and 
he does nothing but win at the highest level from that point on. He even retires, comes back, loses to uh, an Orlando team that looks like they're about to become the team of the second half of the 90s when they lose to him in his comeback season, or when they beat him in his comeback season. And then he comes back, and they have the greatest regular season of all time at the time. They win the title. They three-peat again. And he rides off into the sunset, as the documentary is showing right now, with management basically screwing the Bulls over and making sure that Michael Jordan wears absolutely none of the responsibility for Chicago falling apart after he leaves. And so it's really hard for me to imagine a career that sets up as a better story than that. And then you have all the elements between how good he was as a, a spokesperson and how ahead of the curve he was in that way, where he, like his face is recognizable by people who are not even sports fans, his understanding of how to manipulate the media. Like if you watched last night's episodes and you see him give a gracious interview after suffering a game seven defeat, they're talking to him mere moments after the loss and he's giving credit to the other team. That's like the old crotchety white sports writer's dream. Like, oh my God, look at him. Just look at that sportsmanship. And that's such a contrast to who we know Michael Jordan was. Like he is this vindictive at times dickhead of a person that drove himself to win all these titles. So I don't I, I don't know if I think he's the greatest of all time or if I wanna, you know, be more of a millennial and give that credit to LeBron James, but I think he had the greatest career of all time. And I don't think anything we're gonna see in this documentary will change that stance. Well you know what Kyle? He told everyone that Steve Burrell was an adulterous alcoholic. So guess what? He's only the seventh best player of all time now. <laughs> um, I guess the other thing that stood out was the the Rodman episode, which there were some really bad takes about. It was just weird, Rodman. Today. And I'm a and I'm a Simmons guy. It was it was strange. It was just like, what's the point of saying this? Is he is he mad? He's no longer like this. Is like a you know a thirty for thirty on steroids, and he was such a huge part. We're talking about Bill Simmons' take. I'm sorry if you guys aren't aware of this, where he said that. Rodman hasn't really been interested in interesting in the last 25 years, which doesn't make any sense in the world. And it's like, Bill, are you mad? And again, I'm a Simmons defender. I still read the regular ringer regularly. I'm even someone who he's certainly in his post prime. I still like, so this is just like, dude, what the hell are you doing? Is he mad? He doesn't work for ESPN anymore. He's not a part of something as historic as this. Again, it's like the most juiced up 30 for 30 ever. And now he's, you know, not being able to touch this, you know, hollowed piece of NBA media that's been sitting on this sitting on the shelves for over two decades. I think that's some of it where I think that's where some of that comes in. Some of his distaste for this. Yeah, and so my my first thought when I saw Simmons's take on this today, it's like even if you if you look at the nineties and say, well, it's a much more culturally conservative time and so the stuff with like Rodman having different colored hair and, and dating celebrities, whatever like that. That's not a huge deal. But I think what I really loved about the, the Rodman episode of the last dance is that it got into 
how great he still was as a basketball player in spite of all this, right? Like during that 97-98 season, that's, you know, that's the namesake of the documentary, they allow him to go to Las Vegas in the middle of the season. And yet, like as weird as that sounds, he is good and important enough to that Bulls team that Michael Jordan, this hyper-competitive maniac who you would think would hate somebody like Dennis Rodman, goes to Vegas himself to his hotel room to pull Dennis Rodman away from Carmen Electra to come back and say, buddy, we got a job to do. And so Michael Jordan understood better than anyone that Dennis Rodman is like this freak athlete, hyper-competitive guy that is going to help them win games. And I think the stories about him being in the gym at three or four in the morning and asking friends to miss shots so he could rebound or him being able to tell the difference of the spin of a shot from Michael Jordan versus Joe Dumars or, or whoever you, whoever from that era. Like those are the things you don't hear people talk about with Dennis Rodman a lot. Like that guy at age 35, 36, 37 is leading the league in rebounds and doing so by a comfortable margin on top of being one of the best defensive players in the league deep into his 30s. So, you know, all this stuff about him dating Madonna and cross-dressing and doing all this stuff that gained headlines at the time, that's all well and good. But the fact that he was able to have this ridiculous, like, rock star-esque lifestyle and still be a maniac competitor and athlete, that's the part that makes Dennis Rodman so interesting. Absolutely. So I, that's my long way of saying that Bill Simmons's take was bad and he should feel bad about it. And I, I'm generally a big fan of Bill's, but get it together, buddy. Sad. Um, do we want to, do we have a loser of the week this week, Seamus? Uh, Howard Roseman. You know, I didn't want to go there. If you, if you have anything, you still need to get off your chest from the Eagles draft. By all means, go ahead. No, you have to subscribe to my Patreon newsletter, patreon.com backslash Seamus underscore Clancy. The From Broad Street <laughs> with Love newsletter, delivering you Eagles, Sixers, and Philly talk every Monday through Friday morning, just $2 per month. You get 20 newsletters per month, just $2. Take a shot on me. Get all my Eagles insights into the NFL draft. Yeah, I mean, I didn't like the Jalen Hurts pick. and kind of drive me crazy and ruin my weekend to a degree. So I'm gonna go the other way on this. I mean, I, I think he's I think he's a really good player. But that's the thing that sucked. I was like, okay, well, like I thought he was gonna be a really good pro, but not not for the Eagles. But yeah, go go. So off. my loser of the week is Jalen Hurts. Oh, because uh, he gets put in a possible situation. Yeah, he is in the worst possible situation, and there are a lot of people who sold this as, hey, this is a guy who has shown he can be a backup and he stepped into a situation where you know he he lost his starting job to Tua and then stepped back in to win an SEC championship when when Tua got hurt and they people leave out the part of the story that he was not happy with that and left so he could be a, a, a starter at Oklahoma where he had his best season as a passer ever and all that and, and very obviously was a guy in pursuit of wanting to be a starting quarterback in the NFL. Now, I don't know that he was good or polished enough for him to join a team year one and be a starter, but he's coming to a situation where 
as Seamus, you have said in podcast form and your newsletter all over the place on Twitter, the fans are upset with this. The fans saw you pay a hundred, whatever million dollars to Carson Wentz last off season. And now you draft this quarterback. That's like, Oh, well we believe he's a quarterback and you're not going to be able to use him that way unless your big money quarterback goes down. And so he's in this unenviable position where, you know, being the backup quarterback in Philadelphia is sometimes the best job in the world because everybody's calling for you to play. But he is, this is the rare case where it seems like he can't win no matter what he does, because if he's thrust into that situation, that means something has gone wrong with the franchise guy. People are going to want him to play sooner than he probably should. So you get a return on investment on a second round pick that could have been used for a starter at any number of different positions. Like it's just a terrible, terrible situation for him to be in. And from all accounts, he seems to be a great kid, good leader, a good addition to the Eagles program in that way. And so I think he's the loser of the week. And I don't say that pejoratively. Like I feel bad. Absolutely. That he is in this situation because of uh, Howie Roseman's decision. Absolutely. Could not agree more. I feel bad for the kid. People so, should be praising when the Eagles get a talented second rounder. It just so happens he plays a position that is going to cause uh, deserved controversy. Yeah. So I, I, I am wishing him the best Definitely. As, a, as an athlete and as a person in Philadelphia. I hope that people are able to separate, you know, his traits as a person and a player from where he was picked. I, I know that's not how it works and that's probably not how it's going to happen, but you know, we can still try to let, we can strive to have cooler heads prevail. I'll say that. Yep. Um, all right, everybody. So that should about wrap it up for today. We'll probably catch up with you guys next week. Maybe by then, uh, I believe we'll be close to practice facilities reopening. So maybe someone else will have contracted Corona and shut down the league again. You never know in these uh, weird times. Until then, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Give us some five-star reviews, and we'll be back with you soon. See you guys.